The opinions expressed in the following podcast are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide education and entertainment about the financial industry and the stock market. Enjoy. Today on Pennies Going In Raw, we have on Todd Alt, CEO of Alzheimer Neuro, founder of Alt Global Holdings, and a 25-plus year investor. Let's get it. Hey, yo, check one, two. This is Flavor Flav in the building for the Atlas crew. Atlas trading, what the fuck is up? They're traders, they're prodigies, and then there's legends. Rob, 4%, baby. No way. 4% fucking percent. Buy the fucking dip. Hey, who told me about IDEX? Like, dude, what the fuck? Like, someone just made, like, a lot more money than me on my trade. You find out, life's this game of pennies. Did you check the portfolio? Pennies. 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 The margin for error is so small. I bet Warren Buffett never did that. They out there making money right now off of penny stocks. The two guys is putting their work to make y'all rich. The pennies we need are everywhere around us. Time to think big. Pennies going in raw. Featuring Dan, Deity It Dips, and Hugh Honey. Produced by Vinny Strokes, baby. Today's episode of Pennies Going In Raw is brought to you by Benzinga. Benzinga is our absolute favorite resource to use to trade with. We use it for charts and news and scanners look guys we use it for everything except for buying and selling stocks i mean that's all there is to it and if you're not using benzinga pro which you can get for two weeks free at pro.benzinga.com that's pro.benzinga.com you should at least be checking out their youtube channel every single day youtube.com forward slash Benzinga. They have Hot Stocks Luke's and a just plethora of fantastic guests from me and Hugh to Mia Khalifa to Ripster to CEOs of companies to CEOs of Weeble. They have it all, guys. Make sure you check it out. That's youtube.com forward slash Benzinga. Off. All right, and today on Pennies Going In Raw, we have Todd Alt, Executive Chairman and CEO of Alt Global, founder of Alzamend, and also a content king. He has his own podcast, Alt Onimus, and I mean, that obviously there's a lot there, but first of all, just thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Uh, so usually we start this off with a background, and what really got us interested is that you had a... 30 years experience on Wall Street. Can you kind of just right out of college, kick us off where you kind of started into that? Uh, it, it actually begins a long way, long before college. Um, the, the logic here, I was about 11 years old, saw a show on Moneyline with Lou Dobbs. It, it, way before you guys were born, I, I assure you, uh, there was a show called Moneyline on CNN and uh, I lived in Fullerton, California. We did not have cable, and they they literally drew you know drug trenches in the in the in the in the streets, laid cable, and you could get cable TV with thirteen channels 
with a push-button cord that connected to your TV, and one of those channels was CNN. And uh, I uh, watched Lou Dobbs' interview, do an interview about Warren Buffett. I was like 11 years old. I uh, called uh, Omaha, got all their annual reports, and the rest for me is history. I really kind of only wanted to do two things. I either wanted to fly planes because my family was an Air Force family, or I wanted to um, work on Wall Street. Um, I I had the privilege of um, having a teacher who, um, the rumor has it, he was one of the three Marlboro men, and he taught me about stocks when I was in... uh, school and I and I just became obsessed and so the day I turned 18 I bought my first stock my my mom would not uh, open an account for me um I grew up in a uh a middle class family my mom had me um out of wedlock never knew my biological father and so um I wanted to make money at a young age so I started working at 14 lied to Taco Bell and uh and was ready to start buying stocks you know the day I turned 18 and um you know, wanted to work on Wall Street and 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 beat the heck out of uh, a Dean Witter manager until he hired me. Um, I graduated top of my class at Dean Witter, ran syndicate um, on the West Coast for an office, and went to work in World Trade. I could give you the whole details. It goes on for thirty years, but I don't know how deep. I don't know how deep how deep you want to go. Well, was there any moments that really stuck out to you where you felt like they were really left a huge impression? Um, there were a couple moments. There was an institutional broker named Bob Gilbert who uh, worked at Dean Witter in uh, Laguna Beach who taught me um, to be up early, um, literally before the market, 4 a.m. to the office, 4.30 on the West Coast. Um, a lot, I learned a lot from him, but, I, but the problem for me is that in the early stages, I wanted to get farther, faster. I wanted to like get all the knowledge I could and jump ahead of the, the the regular routine of Wall Street to learning. And I think that that was a mistake for myself that I, uh, I really wanted to jump ahead of the process. And it took me a while to understand that I needed to learn more about Wall Street than just saying I worked there. And so um, in the beginning, my naivete worked because I was put in charge of an, an IPO for a REIT called um, Irvine Apartment Communities. And I simply just didn't know any better. And I went around a bunch of brokers and said, hey, you, you should put your clients in this REIT because it's Irvine and we were in Orange County, Irvine Apartment Communities. And I didn't quite understand that in the 70s, REITs really blew up. So a lot of those older brokers wouldn't do those deals. Um, but we ended up raising $686 million. The company went public. It was a huge offering in the Orange County area. And um, they suddenly put me in charge of every REIT through the office, every deal ever known to mankind, every REIT. I can, it's re- rare when I say the word every, but I think every REIT from 1992-ish or so to 96 passed my desk um, because I was able to, to sell a lot of them, get people pumped about doing REITs and stuff like that. Um, and that was an experience for me that that taught me how to market a deal and bring a deal public, but still not knowing kind of how the process worked because Dean Witter was a bulge bracket bank before it merged with Morgan Stanley. They, they kind of had their own way, their own methodology. And I was part of that industrial infrastructure that they had, this back office, which I really never appreciated till later in life. And you can't understand when you're running and working in an investment bank how important the back office is. And I didn't realize that till later. 
one thing you mentioned is how you kind of wanted to skip the process. Uh, what do you think? Do you have any advice for all these new retail investors that are just hopping in the market and they want it? They they got their AMC, their GameStop gains, and they're ready for everything to be big boy money. Yeah, I will tell you, it's the most troubling thing I've ever seen, and the most empowering thing. So let me let me tell you what what I've not. I can't reconcile it. Okay, I cannot reconcile it with the two of you how this works for me because on the one hand, you have a generation that has great access to data. So the edge that Wall Street used to have, which I used to have, which was reading and studying and knowing it before someone else is, the edge is in your palm, the palm of your hands, that that device, that that phone, that access to data is overwhelming. And I have not been able to handicap that versus the speed and the cost of trading. So when I first did my first trade ever as a broker, I bought 1,000 shares for a guy named Sam Panijan, my very first client. He was an Armenian. He bought 1,000 shares at 52 and a quarter. It cost him $500 to buy 1,000 shares, and that was a 49% discount. It would have cost him somewhere about 900 bucks. Commissions are zero now. Right, and I I don't care what anyone says about order flow. Commissions are zero. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my execution's great. I don't you know I don't care about all this nonsense about fractions of a penny. The reality is is when I use Robinhood, I get an order right away. When I use Webull, I get an order right away. When I use ETrade, right away. All this other stuff is nonsense. It doesn't mean anything. The retail investor is powered in a way that's biblical. Okay, but they haven't experienced, in my opinion the reverse of how bad the market can be. I was there for the uh, debacle that was uh, .com, and it was stocks went to zero. They went to zero, dude. I mean, all the way to zero. Um, and I don't think anything I can say will make anyone hear that, right? That it's possible that a stock goes to zero. So I want to tell both of you, I don't, under, I don't know. I don't know how to handicap the power that you guys have in the palm of your hands and the knowledge you guys get faster than older generations. So if you think that a computer exponentially gets more powerful, right, Moore's Law, then you've got to believe that the retail investor is getting more educated faster, quicker, with more knowledge. And so in one way, I would never bet against them. But in another way, when there is an epic sell-off, it will be biblical. It, it, to your point, I heard you say, you know, you saw some stocks go to zero. So I was actually having a conversation with someone not too long ago. And one of their points was that since since the, really the 1980s, we're rigged long. We're, we're basically rigged long and saying that, you know, with all these, you know, circuits in place, hot downs. I mean, we could halt for an entire day. Uh, does that change kind of like the the perspective your perspective in saying that yeah okay stocks could go to zero but it would take so long for for you know the S&P to really have like let's call it like a 60% drawdown because there are those measures in place in 2008 i believe after the Lehman bankruptcy i watched the the market go down every single day very similar to what happened, uh, the Ackman bottom when he said, you know, this is going off the cliff here with the Ackman bottom uh, after COVID. Yeah. Um, people act in irrational ways. And when the tide turns the other way, the people will be irrational. Now, 
it's a catch-22 for me because I've made almost all my money in irrational days. That's where I really where I've had the big payoff in those irrational periods of time. Um, so I, there's no way that you could convince me as a guy who's done this a long time and ran a hedge fund uh, for many years and owned a broker-dealer, has been CEO of public and private companies, that um, – that you couldn't have a biblical sell-off where – but I'm not referring – so this is a different question. I'm not referring to the indexes going to zero. Yeah. That's not something like in the 70s that took place where you had the nifty 50. I'm talking about individual securities that don't make sense, that they won't have a bid the same way when there's some sort of sell-off. But gotcha. there's so much liquidity right now, and there's so many people in the market – that that process would take a longer time. I'm, I'm agreeing with you that it would take a longer time for that to happen because there's so much liquidity and there's so many diverse traders out there now that have a better understanding of things. Um, you know, I'm the executive chairman of a public company. We put something out and within a minute, people are posting stuff, even, even if it's incorrect, they're posting their version of a story about what's really taking place. Um, and Hugh, I saw you. I mean, I, your story is remarkable about how well you've done. And yes. this is, goes back to my point about how the, 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 the speed of things now has changed. The velocity of trading has changed. The velocity of money has changed. And therefore, I'm not going to say it's different this time. It's not. But it's different in the sense that the marketplace is different. There are more players than ever before with more data, compressing that data in a faster period of time with some pretty brilliant people. I mean, there are people out there. You know, I run a, I run a, I run a bunch of investments now, about $100 million. Uh, I'm, uh, I have a new fund uh, launching. Um, there are brilliant people out there that are young that never went to college that I'd hire in a second to come work for me because they're smart and connected and, uh, and incredibly knowledgeable on uh, access to data. Yeah, another thing, uh, how you were mentioning with people acting either irrational in these situations where, you know, everything's going crazy is how culty some of this stuff's been like with the, if you sell, now it's, you're going against the cause. But one thing, you know, I've always liked about what one message you've always talked about is how convention and or conviction and how after all these years you've kind of developed the ability to see the bigger picture and just make money overall. What would you kind of suggest to these newer people who are kind of struggling with conviction and risk management? Well, if they're, if they're trading momentum, you don't have any conviction, right? I mean, the, the, the stock that the stocks that I trade for the most part, the trading part is, technical there's some event taking place the stocks that i own are based on conviction i own and mm -hmm. have been investing with alzheimer for six years i own it i'm i'm not trading it to trade it i have recently bought more on the way down it's an interesting dilemma because it went public at five went to 33.55 then went to seven and i bought more i just said I, i'm gonna buy more because i'm con i'm convinced of the long-term value if there can be value in a biostock, using the word value connected to a biostock. But um, I own 
you know, I own all global. I own I own these stocks, and I'm they're they're part of a longer term investment philosophy I have. And then I have stocks that are extremely short term that I scalp, and then I have stocks that have a story that I invest in, but that I don't own control. So there's really only three things for me. I either own control or have some form of control. I own an investment where I don't have any control, but I'm convicted on some investment portion of it, or everything else is a trade. I mean, I'm I mean, for the for the audience, I'm short not a lot, but I'm short uh uh, AMC, and I'm short the calls every week, pretty much every two weeks. I short the calls. Yeah, I'm happy that you brought up ALZN because I did, I did, I did have a few questions about that. Um, I've personally never. I mean, again, I'm in a young career, but I've personally never seen such a large percentage takedown of an IPO by one party. Um, you know, why did you do this? Was this simply because? I mean, obviously, you know, you know the company really well. Um, <clears throat> and then also, as you said, you bought more after the IPO. And because of the 10% rule, you know, uh, you obviously have to hold for a minimum of six months. Um, you know, so are you comfortable with that? And, you know, can you kind of just, just walk me through like your, your uh, logic of taking so much of that IPO down? Yeah, so let me let me comment about this. I'm no longer the chairman of Olzamend. I'm the founder and okay. I'm chairman emeritus. I was the chairman up into the IPO on purpose. I put my partner as chairman because he has a biotech background. Okay. I have an investment background. He actually has a, a knee-deep upward, um, been deep in venture capital out of Seattle in biotech. Um, and I thought he was better suited for what's to come, including going into patients, working two drugs, different indications, et cetera. Um, you know, I, I hope this, this is a great chance to be on your show, actually, to set the record straight. So the two drugs were developed by the University of South Florida, uh, one by a group of doctors, AL001, Dr. Scheidel, Adam, uh, Dr. Zeracco, a very good comprehensive team on the lithium compound. The other one was Dr. Chow, who's still there, who just became, became a professor, who developed what's called um, AL002 or CHOW22W. Um, these are 10 years in the making, each one of these drugs. And so we didn't take it lightly when we licensed AL002, which is actually the first drug, which is the vaccine. And then we licensed AL001, which is the lithium compound, which is, if you read the prospectus, in the prospectus, they claim they're filing the IND by tomorrow by the close of business tomorrow. I can confirm with you on your show that I talked to the CEO and he told me to, to relay to you that nothing has changed and that they're filing their IND tomorrow before the close of business. Um, I can confirm that with you that that's what he said. And I believe right. that that's the case. Um, I don't think people understand what AL001 is. So I'm going to try to give you my version of this drug. It's unique. Lithium's been around for, for decades, okay? And as you call recently, you saw Britney Spears, they put her on lithium, right? Or her dad made her take lithium. Lithium itself is toxic to the body and in high dosages can hurt people. Uh, it, lithium is used in car batteries. Lithium is used a different kind, but use, lithium is used to treat bipolar, PTSD, the lithium that they created is a co-crystal compound with uh, salicylate and proline 
which is effectively a form of aspirin. And what it does is it's co-crystallized into a small molecule and delivered into the brain in a smaller dose, which therefore you could conclude, we have to prove, by the way, I want to be clear, we still have to prove this, but you could conclude that you would not need a blood test to test the levels for toxicity because it's a smaller dose. There's a ton of evidence out there already that it helps people with Alzheimer's, including improved cognition, slowing the progression. Now, these are holy grail events. Like, think about it. If, if AL001 slows the progression of Alzheimer's, it'll be a holy grail event, right? I mean, it'll be like biblical for the company and for the public. My father was recently put into an Alzheimer's home. It will not help him. But the reason why I have such a high conviction here is I've, I've spent time with the scientists. I've spent time at the University of South Florida. I've spent time with the researchers who tell me, look at, there's a video that I did with Dr. Wasninski, whose father is one of the most famous Alzheimer's doctors in the world. That video, which he did with me, he basically outlines how this lithium, he believes, will stop a tau, reduce tau phosphorylation. So you're talking about a change in brain chemistry for Alzheimer's patients that would be enough to, in some cases, slow the progression, hopefully stop the progression, improve cognitive function at the same time that it helps them with uh, aggravation, which is a big problem for Alzheimer's patients. It's hard to deal with them when they're so upset, and this way you get the best of both worlds. But let me take the investor through another part of it. This is a drug that has... 15 different indications for other things. And we believe that we believe and hope it's going to become a lithium replacement on prescription. There's already approximately, according to our data, 3.1 million people on lithium. And they're, they're doing that and having to get blood tests. This is a lithium replacement. This is lithium 2.0 with a huge benefit for Alzheimer's patients. Remember, Alzheimer's patients are generally older and they're not easy to deal with when it comes to giving them medication. This is a sprinkle capsule. You can put it in their food. They can take it. So I'm a believer that we're, I'm a believer in my, with my money and the company's money. And I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting anyone buy the stock. This is up to you. But if, if I've done enough research to understand that I think that it's a lithium replacement 2.0 at a minimum. At a maximum, it's a massive treatment for Alzheimer's. And therefore, I have a way out. I have a $300 million to a $3 billion drug for lithium replacement, possibly. I say that because I have to say that until it gets through the FDA. But you're asking me why I have conviction. I have yeah. conviction that this is a uh, the drug is a massive winner, assuming it gets through all the testing, because it's replacing an existing market. It's a reformulation, composition of matter, and a better lithium. But now for the first time, instead of using lithium carbonate, you can use AL001 to then get people with Alzheimer's to have a treatment for them, which would be an, a huge accomplishment for people to be able to take this to change their mood and also to help them with their Alzheimer's. Now, secondarily to that, there's a vaccine. Now, the first one, uh, the Elan vaccine, they used an adjunct, and it put water on the brain, and they died from basically water on the brain, and that stopped the test. Dr. Chow invented uh, a, a mutant peptide, Chow22W, where we take your blood, 
we treat it, we put it back and inoculate you with your own blood with a mutant peptide in it, therefore unfolding the tangles in the brain. And he's convinced that it's a vaccine. Now, these are not, um, I want to be clear here, these are not, um, these are not uh, uh, base hits. These are, if, if successful, they're grand slams to epic degree if they work. And I understand, therefore, if you look at valuation for me, when I was able to put the $10 million in at 5 bucks, I had already put money in lower. So if you look at uh, all Global's position, they have approximately $22 million shares with, I think, a $2 and around $0.25, $0.26 cent average if they, ex- if they exercise all their investment. From a valuation perspective, if you look at it just being a lithium replacement, I think I make money. If it's just a lithium replacement, if it's everything we want, and it's never everything you want, then the numbers are gigantic. Just to think about about what a treatment for Alzheimer's would be worth, and I want to be clear with everyone, never sold a single share, um, haven't taken a penny out of the company, uh, and in fact... I would argue for the first six years, I didn't want anything from the company. I wanted this. Remember, I'm married to someone whose mom died from this. My grandparents died from Alzheimer's. My, my, my dad's sister has it. My dad is now in a home, a co, a, 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 an adjacent home to my, his sister, in a home for Alzheimer's. Um, and this is, this is, I wanted to do something. I didn't want to have a career on Wall Street where I spent all my time financing, you know, Chuck E. Cheese, and, and, and great people go to Chuck E. Cheese or whatever. I'm I'm being uh, I'm being a smart ass a little bit, but like <laughs> I wanted it to be a meaningful investment, and so Alzheimer's has become meaningful, and I realize it's going to be volatile, and and there's going to be people, people that trade it, but the most important thing is when it gets into patients, what that data shows, and if it shows what the scientists believe then we are, uh, we're off to the races. Yeah, so you touched on it, but is that pretty much where your passion comes from for this, is, is from like your family legacy? Is that, is that where all this comes from, or is there... If I believe there was a better Alzheimer's uh, company, I'd invest in the company. Uh, it's not about the company. I, I, it's not me. I didn't do this. The scientists did it. I mean, Dr. Chow, Dr... Uh, uh, Scheidel, Dr. Adams, all those guys, they did the work. Dr. Zarocco, um, they did the work and they believe in it. I, I looked them right in the eyes and I, I, and I spent time with them. They, they educated me on the product. Uh, Zarocco is one of the top uh, chemists around in the world. Um, d- none of this should be, the only credit I get is raising the capital. Uh, and and making people and beating them with a stick to do this because I had to physically beat people into like verbally until they did this deal because it would took forever for me to convince people that this is the way to go because they're like what do you know about Alzheimer's um, yeah and I had yeah. to have conviction hardcore to make them understand this was going to go public and we were going to get multiple shots on goal to to help people listen. There's two drugs that can help Alzheimer's patients, and one of those drugs has multiple indications for PTSD, bipolar, suicidality, um, all kinds of different indications regarding psychiatric care. Um, and I didn't take this lightly. This is something that I have worked on for six years 
before it went public. I see people talking about like, you know, I, I pulled this out of my ass a couple of days ago. It didn't happen. This is something that's been going on for a long, long time. And the university is very behind it. And keep in mind that University of South Florida is one of the biggest shareholders of Alzamend. Yeah, I, uh, I definitely think everyone will agree this is uh, a lot more important than Chuck E. Cheese um, with you there. But uh, so one thing for our listeners, would you mind kind of uh, you said that an IND will be filed by tomorrow, which is Wednesday, the 30th. Um, would you mind kind of explaining for our listeners that don't know what an IND is and what that means for your company? I do. I want to be clear. I said that the prospectus said there would be an IND filed tomorrow. Okay. That's yeah. the legal that's the legal <laughs> disclosure. Right. And then yeah. no, not allegedly, the prospectus says it. And then yeah, I yeah, wanted yeah. to tell you that I confirmed with the CEO that they were filing tomorrow. Okay? Okay. So I, I just want to keep you know, everyone I get my words monitored, trust me. Right, right. Um, I, yeah, my yeah. bad for uh, putting them in your mouth. No, that. no, that's okay. It's all right. Uh so an IND is an investigational new drug application. And it's what you file with the FDA before you go into patients. Now, we have a CRO called Tamnet. They've been working for two years to file this IND. And you need the money. The reason why you go public is you need the money in the bank to prove to the, uh, uh, the scientists when they go to test patients that you have the capital to see it through because you can't really stop midstream, right? So they raise that $14 million. They're ready now to go into patients you file the IND, you have the capital to go, and you start studying. Now, in the case of lithium, I said earlier, AL001, that's not a new drug in the sense that it's not been out there before. So you think, wow, it's already safe. But it's the first time the combination of these drugs have been put together in a composition of matter. So the FDA said, hey, we want you to do a short study to make sure it's safe for the belly and for the patients. And then we want you to start dosing patients after that. We're hoping to go to a phase 2B and fast track. Once we think we have efficacy, the company's goal uh, is to get that into human beings uh, for actual treatment, right? Um, to do that, there'll be a small study in the beginning just to make sure it's safe. Um, it is lithium. It has been used for years, so we're anticipating, obviously, the best. Um, it has been tested in other ways before it goes into humans, and so the IND allows you to tell the FDA, this is what we're doing. Here's all the thousands of documents we have to support that our drug is safe. And then they give you the go-ahead to go into human beings. That's what an IND is. And that's really uh, the, the, the genesis of it going to get approval and ultimately be in human. So this IND will allow them to go into human beings and go through the different phases of the approval process. And Long before we're in phase, the, the drug is in phase three, you'll have data, um, and that data will be the most important part of understanding the drug's chemistry and the uh, efficacy for, for patients. That's awesome. That, I mean, that's super exciting. And, you know, first off, congratulations on even getting this far. I mean, when you think about oncology and Alzheimer's, you know, it's such a difficult space to even make a, a, a small splash in. So, the other thing that I was reading online is that a lot of in, uh, investors are worried about your cash position. That excuse me, cash position. Um, can you touch a little bit on if you guys plan to raise? Uh, because you know, human trials are expensive. Uh, you know, I know that you guys raised a lot, but it, where do you see that runway going? I, I want to be careful and and tell you what the CEO told me. 
The yeah. CEO told me there is no plans in the next year that they need any capital and that they will be able to put both drugs in human beings with the current capital they have. Now, keep awesome. in mind, it's important to understand that uh, we have uh, we have the right to put in more capital. So when you look at our yeah. exposure under what they currently have, they would not need any more money for quite some time. I can't quote it exactly, but to be careful and read the prospectus, he I think he told me something that if with the current money they have, they would have like an 18 to 24 month runway um, if they didn't raise any additional capital and then we didn't put additional capital in. He, I think he told me that with the capital we committed to put in, the additional capital, uh, they wouldn't need any for quite some time. Um, now, would they, if the stock were to be like some of these other stocks that have traded to the moon, would they do an offering? I can't put words in their mouth that they wouldn't, but I would not anticipate something like that um, for the foreseeable future. Um, I want to be careful. The, the company was financed in a way where they would not need to go get capital, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm careful the way I say this because, you know, obviously – if they get evaluation like some of these other drugs do, if they get data and they chose to say, take advantage of a much bigger opportunity, that's different. But um, the last conversation I had with them regarding this was before they went public in which they told me, Todd, based on our current financing, we would not need any money for quite some time, 18 to 24 months or longer and that would be and, – and then the longer part would be is if I decided to put the existing money I've committed to put into – now, I have the right to say I'm not going to put it in. But uh, if they're making progress, there would be no reason why we wouldn't commit the additional capital. Um, you know, Obviously, circumstance can change, but th- we did not go public with the idea of doing a secondary offering anytime in the first year. Well, listen, Todd, I think uh, as a shareholder, full disclosure, if, uh, if I'm looking at uh, $50 a share, you can, uh, you can raise uh, any amount that, or, or they can raise as much as they want at, uh, at $50 a share. I'll be, uh, I'll be, I'll be fat and pretty. I, you know, I would say to you that I don't know that even for them at 50 bucks a share, I can't speak for them anymore, but I don't know that they would need to raise capital because they have uh, a commitment from all global uh, through DPL uh, for, as you read it, additional warrants and stuff like that that we can exercise. Um, yeah. And so I think that they they would, you know, they they would obviously be thrilled with that if that ever happened, that price. But they they didn't bring we didn't bring the company public um, with the idea that we had to go back to the capital markets. I know a lot of companies do that. Yeah. Um, this is not one that is in need of capital tomorrow or six months from now. Um, after they get into patients and they have data and they believe the drugs have real value in the sense that they can show clinical data of where they're headed towards, then you, you do have a different conversation. I didn't want them to go public. Uh, if you ever looked at DPW or global, we went we went and bought the company and financed it and then bought things and needed to keep financing and then the market kind of went against them uh and then it ended up being kind of a bloodbath for a while um 
because you had need, you needed capital and the market kind of knew that, and then you you could only go to the investors that would give you capital under really difficult circumstances, which I'm not a fan of. I didn't want Alzheimer to go public with a need for any capital from anybody else for a long time. So if they needed to go get capital, they would have to come to me first and explain why they, uh, you know, I would suggest that they would have to explain why they needed additional capital. Um, they had it th- pretty thought out. I, the Stefan, the CEO, is a, a nuclear scientist. Um, I think he has a degree in nuclear engineering. Um, I don't think he does anything that he doesn't think about. And then kind of test it again because, you know, I guess if you if you mess up in the nuclear world, you mess up permanently, right? <laughs> the stakes are a little higher, yeah. So I did want to shift gears to DPW, unless you had anything else that you wanted to say about ALZN. I would just tell you that uh, it is a marathon, not a sprint, and uh, I would encourage everyone to learn about the two drugs. I would overly encourage, forget the stock for a second, I would overly encourage you that if you have a, a family member with Alzheimer's dementia, to, to look at what they're doing. I don't know the rules, but I do know that Trump signed some laws into place. Once the drug is in human beings, there is certain compassionate use, and I would encourage everyone to pay attention to that. There's going to be a lot of development in Alzheimer's over the next one to five years, and I'm really optimistic about the idea that, that we're, we're working hard, and other Alzheimer's companies are working hard, to get drugs in human beings, there has been really no progress, in my opinion, even with Biogen uh, being approved in 100 years. There's been nothing out there and a lot of failures. And so I'm really optimistic now that the FDA is working hand-in-hand with public and private sector to get something approved. Yeah, not to mention how many people it affects and everything else. Is, I mean, it's it's such a problem in America and everywhere. It's the sixth yeah. leading cause of death in the United States, and it's one of the most feared diseases for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like I said, I did want to shift gears to DPW a little bit, and you know, <laughs> I, I don't even know where to start with DPW. Um, it, it, first off, can you can you tell me how you really became the CEO of of a holding company? Well, it goes back to the the Buffett thing when I was eleven. I always wanted to run a publicly traded holding company. I was on the American Stock Exchange before I took over Franklin Capital. We changed the name to Patient Safety Technologies, and ultimately that company was sold to Stryker for $120 million, and I always regretted not having a holding company. And I decided when I came back after 2008, after the debacle of 2008 where I, my broker-dealer went out of business, et cetera, that I would run a holding company again and permanently run one. So I made a list of five companies that I wanted to take over. DPW was one of them. Within a year, all three, three of the companies were taken over by somebody else. And I got a call from a broker who said, hey, got a company in Fremont, publicly traded. I said, if it's in Fremont, it's got to be DPW. He said, how'd you know? I said, on my list, serendipity. Two days later, I made a deal with the chairman to buy control of the company because he was ill. He was in, in Israel. Uh, it took nine months to close. I ultimately control, bought control on the 22nd of... 2016, September 2016, and then built the process of converting it to being a holding company, never imagining that the fact that that company made power supplies since 1969, that that would be connected in a way with with crypto and, and take off and the company would get a life of its own 
even though we did other things. And so it's one thing I've learned I wouldn't recommend it to anybody is building a holding company while public before you go public is probably much better than building a holding company while you're public having to lay the asphalt while you drive the car. Um, uh, build the road while you drive. It's pretty tough. And we had a kind of a biblical launch out of, of Bitcoin when it went to 20000 the first time, seventeen eighteen. We had the crash of having all those shareholders bail out of us. Um, we were buying a defense business. We bought another defense business. We were building the holding company at the same time. And I think it really confused investors as to whether that what did what did we own? Because we owned restaurants, we owned lots of things, and it was a it was a tough go ahead. It was a tough uh, process, but we stuck to it. We ultimately changed the name of DPW DPW Digital Power, which the symbol is DPW. We ultimately changed the name of the company to All Global Holdings. We now own a defense company uh, that owns businesses in Israel, two in uh, England, one in Connecticut. Um, we ha- uh, we have acquired. Microphase, Relac, we acquired Entertech. Um, we own a power electronics business, which is Coolasis, which is, owns digital power, the old digital power. They have an EV business called Turn On Green. We developed a, a California licensed lender, digital power lending. Um, we own a data center in Michigan. Um, the list is on. As many of you guys know, we're activist investors. I've always been an activist investor when I ran a hedge fund. I made lots of investments in public companies where I tried to seek control or change. You recently saw uh, Terra Wolf merge with Iconics. That was a big position of ours. We owned 10% of uh, Iconics. It was a huge win for us. We had a huge win in SSY, in Mosey, M-O-S-Y, uh, Friedman Industries. We started buying that in the 8-9 range. That great steel, that business has really done great because of steel and the steel prices. Um, uh, what else do we have a 13D filing in? I can't even remember at this point. SSNT <laughs> is one of our biggest positions. And we have that stock, was we started buying it at four. It's now, I think, 11 or 12, 1150. Uh, they're a software as a service business. And they also have a software resale business. They're like an Accenture, a mini Accenture. Y'all are holding a lot of the stuff that uh, stock Twitter holds. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll know a lot of these. Mosey, SS&T, they love this. Yeah, Mosey, I bought, ended up buying, I was buying, started buying it at three bucks. So I'm a, at heart, I'm an activist investor, a deep value investor at heart. That's what I do. You should uh, hop on FinTwit more often, man. We need more people like you on stock Twitter. On stock Twitter or stock twits? Stock Twitter, no, we, we, we stay <laughs> away from stock twits a lot. It's hectic over there. <laughs> People make up people <laughs> make up all. stuff about me all the time. I, I'm like fascinated with what they come up with. It's the most <laughs> I, honestly for entertainment purposes. Sometimes at night I just log on to StockTwits and say, "Hey, honey, did you know I did this before?" Because there's all kinds of cockamamie things on there, and they 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 only talk about my losers. They don't talk about uh, SNFCA or Jack in the Box or Taco Cabana or how uh, patient safety sold the strike for 120 million. They only talk about my losers, which is fine. Yeah, that that's that's not in their that's not in their plan. I mean, that that doesn't fit their agenda right there. If they talk about your winners, for yeah. sure. I, so I became the CEO of a holding company really because I wanted permanent capital, and I want to build and reward shareholders over time. We're doing that now, but the road to get to where we hurt now involved two stock reverses and a lot of pain. At the last quarter, we reported 160 million in cash, securities, and investments. And about 234 million in assets, and that's before Alzheimer's went public. 
So we're clearly headed in a different direction in terms of scale and size, and we continue to build the holding company. And we said in the last uh, quarterly report, we are actively involved in acquisitions of other businesses that we think will fit our holding company model. When we continue to have our heads down and do that, despite the fact that people I don't think they like the holding company model. They'd rather have a specific stock investment. I understand that. And DPW, all global, may not be for everybody. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny because one of the questions that I had on here was why the disparate investments? Uh, because when, when you look at really, I mean, the amount, the, the real shift in the last, I'll call it like four years, you know, it's been quite a shift. And, and that's part of what really confused me when I was looking into DPW. And that was one of the questions that I had was, um, you know, is D- DPW an investment or is there some grand plan inside these investments? Um, we've talked about uh, the EV business going public on its own. That probably is something that is, is in, in the plans. We've, we've said that publicly. Um, we definitely think we'll bring the defense business public. I think that is already in the cards. So you he- you'll hear more about that soon. Um, these are things I've already publicly disclosed. So, EV and uh, EV Power Electronics and Defense, both separately publicly traded companies. Um, we do believe that uh, AVLP will get current and we'll uplist that eventually someday in the next year or so. And that's a big holding in textiles. Um, but for the most part, after that, it will be a re- risk reward where we will look at um, is, you know, in the long term, is buying back stock make sense? Does dividending out something make sense? Does giving shareholders an opportunity to participate in those IPOs makes sense. All those are on the cards. What I would say I what I would say is if you looked at the Liberty Media model, John Malone and Greg Maffei, I'm not John Malone. I'll never be John Malone. But if I were John Malone, then my man um, uh, Will Horn, our CEO, is Greg Maffei, and that's the way I work it. He's my business partner. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we own the private Alton company together. I'm the largest shareholder and controlling shareholder of Alton Company, but he's a big shareholder and the CFO of that company, and he's the CEO of our operating company um, through Alt Global. So we we do this in a way where we're trying to build something similar to like a Liberty Media. We'll, we'll, we'll probably fall into some clear categories. We just announced the acquisition of 40% of ad tech, uh, which is a um, a synthetic cannabinoid treatment for glaucoma. Uh, we probably will be heavier in biotech in terms of owning biotechs and investing in healthcare. Um, so we, we have other positions to announce over time in that space. Um, you asked, is it an investment? We're a holding company that owns operating businesses. Um, a vast majority of our first quarter results came from our financial business. A vast majority of the second quarter results will likely come from our financial investments. We do make significant financial commitments that we expect to have liquidity on over time. All right. Well, we'll go back to some some fun stuff right here. We got Bitcoin. Every time we talk about it, we get uh, we get roasted because you know we we know stocks and the crypto community is a different universe. Do you? What are your thoughts going forward on Bitcoin as we record this? It's around thirty to thirty five thousand. Um, I think long-term Bitcoin uh, doesn't go away. It is a we're in a universe where we print currency. Forty percent or plus of our currency that's ever been printed has been printed in the last eighteen months, and I think that number ranges from thirty to forty. Um, I don't think you can 
I don't think crypto, specifically Bitcoin and Ethereum, go away. I think that there's a long-term use case for them. And if I were the U.S. government, uh, instead of printing so much money, I'd print enough money to start buying some Bitcoin and put it on your balance sheet. I think they should do exactly what Elon Musk did and, and Saylor did uh, at MicroStrategies, and the U.S. government should put Bitcoin on its balance sheet. Um, I think it's going to be a uh, – like it is in El Salvador, it's going to be a currency that – the government can't ultimately control. They can't print more of, and it'll be a. Um, it's really the currency to me, or the savings for me of your generation. You guys are all digital. You don't know anything else. You don't know what it's like to have a phone that has a busy signal. You don't know what it's like. and so your generation. That digital currency is that digital, you know, as Marshall says, AI super soldier. I, I don't think it can be stopped. And so I think as an allocation of your portfolio, you got to have some money in Bitcoin. We have it. We mine Bitcoin now at, at All Global through uh, Alliance Cloud Services. We have, we in the last, I think, I want to be clear on this. I'll just be clear. I think in the last year, we have never sold a single Bitcoin on our balance sheet. We continue to acquire it through mining. Um, and probably look for us to do more things in the crypto space with Ethereum. Uh, we're believers in it. I know Jason is a big believer in it. We follow it every day on our show, Risk On. And we think that you got to own some of it. And and unfortunately, until it gets mainstream, it's going to be very volatile. Um, and there could be 50, 60, 70% sell-offs as governments try to... Uh, let me give you my Bitcoin story. Okay? I'm going to give you my Bitcoin story. Uh, I had a friend who sold 5,000 Bitcoin at $5 because he needed the 25 grand. That was one story. He re regrets that because I think it's 180 million now. I have another, yeah, that's, that's but, but, the, but the main story is the story of my, my sister. My sister was 18 years old and she was dating an older Marine who was like 28 years old. And my mom said to her, you will not see that man. You will not be with that man. You will not date that man. My sister said, okay, mom, married him, had a baby, and moved to Tennessee. Now, what's the point of Bitcoin is that if you, tell, if you tell all the Bitcoin owners that they can't have it, I assure you the more the government resists it, the more Bitcoin will survive. You cannot tell your generation, the digital generation that has instant gratification at their phone, and a belief that the government can take stuff away from them, you can't tell them that's going to go bye-bye. Now, they could tax it. They could try to tax it for sure, but I don't think it's going anywhere. I think, it, if anything, it's going to be more mainstream than ever. All these other altcoins and all these other uh, tokens and stuff like that that aren't backed it by something. So pump and dumpy. Yeah, those are like, you know, Dogecoin and, you know, whatever. I, I don't, you know, where there's an unlimited supply, that, that's going to end badly. But crypto has a limited supply. And, a, an, and you have to have conviction behind mining it to get it. And that conviction, that commitment to the dollars gives it its own value and the network gives it its value. All right. Well, uh, I guess to kind of wrap up, uh, you were just talking about, you mentioned your podcast uh, after you said one thing, which was a lie. Uh, we don't know anything about busy signals. Anytime I got a call at my house or my mom did, I was kicked off the internet. So thank God that's changed. Um, 
But but you mentioned uh, your podcast, and, and we always like to wrap it up with uh, you know giving you a little plug. So if you want to talk about any podcast you have or or any of your companies or anything you got, so I got. I have a I have a podcast I do occasionally called Autonomous, and that's usually with people I really like. Um, in fact, <laughs> I asked asked Hugh to come on my podcast because I was like. I want to know a story. I've been reading about a story. So that to me is I, I always want to have people on my podcast that I like and admire um, and they have a different angle than I had. So that's why I do that podcast. My daily show, which is live every day at 105, 115, is with Jason Bartholomew, um, who's works with me with business development and trading. He's a, he's a professional poker player. He's an analytical guy. And so we talk about the markets every day, Monday through Friday. The, every day the market's open. We have a show called Risk On. I have a Risk On conference that will happen in um, October. Uh, you guys are clearly going to be invited. I wanted you guys to speak at the conference. That's something that I spoke to Drew about and I hope happens. Um, but I'm going to have an annual Risk Conference where we can talk about what people are doing. Um, you know, I don't make any money of those things. I just do them because I want to talk to the people about what I'm doing and get ideas. I get a ton of ideas from the audience for sure. Um, I recently subscribed to, uh, I think, Hugh, your Twitter and something else. It's, it's endless amounts of ideas. <laughs> it goes back to my original thesis when you said, what about today's generation? And that is, you guys are doing it differently than anyone ever before. And the power of what you guys are doing, the power of your group, the power of Reddit, uh, Wall Street Bets, the power of the communication, the instant communication you guys have, is something Wall Street's never seen and not ready. And Wall Street tends to react to regulation, meaning they're behind in the regulatory environment. They don't know how to deal with you guys. And that means you're disruptive. And my whole business model is acquiring undervalued assets, disruptive technologies with a global impact. You guys are undervalued. The Wall Street did not respect you before January. You guys were, you guys, um, were disruptive. They didn't understand that, and you guys have had a global impact. So I've had to stand up and listen and go, it doesn't matter what I think. What are these guys who have control so much capital and so much resources and the ability to communicate in lightning speed? What, is it, what are they saying? And it matters now. What you guys do matters. I say, Todd, if you uh, wanted to acquire us for – you know, nine figures, you know, I think we could, I, you know, you called us undervalued. I think we could come to a, come to terms if, uh, if we had a nine figure deal. If you had a, if you had a fund, I might invest in your fund. <laughs> no, I was, I was just going to say, uh, how you're right. They really didn't respect a lot of the, the retail investors until January, February. I never saw like every single day I see, uh, a notification pop up. Top 20 tickers that Wall Street Bets is talking about this morning. I wasn't seeing those in January or any time before that. You know, they, they took notice. And even, even when it happened the first time in February, they had to take a unprecedented halt to it all and just stop trading from all the brokers. So, you know, it's, it's interesting the way they handle it. They didn't know it was coming. And they don't. You guys, have, you guys really have the power to be in it or out of it. Um, and you're clearly affecting going to affect legislation and regulation. Um, you see more comments for the uh, IPO of Robinhood that's been delayed a little bit because there's more comments from the SEC. But I can't think of a better thing that's happened than the ability for you guys to manage your own money in a way that's uh, 
really meaningful and you don't have to you don't have to kowtow to what the other way other people do it um and and that's changed the way i have to think i tell you one of the reasons i brought on jason is because he pays attention to what everyone's saying about a stock and jason he said your name to me uh hugh he said your name to me long before i ever met you he said hugh likes it this guy likes it that guy likes it i'm like who are these people it's like they matter <laughs> they matter these, they're, they're cartoon characters on Twitter. Uh, you know, Zach Morris from Saved by the Bell and Hugh Hefner, the dead, like, Playboy guy, you know. <laughs> the, the stock moguls now. Yeah, no, but, yeah, everything's changing so fast. But it, thank you so much for coming on, man. It, is, it has been awesome to hear about uh, your story, your companies, and, and your, just your thoughts on all of this. I appreciate it. All right, man. Well, uh, thanks again, and I uh, hope you have a good Tuesday afternoon. Hey, I'm really uh, grateful you guys support All's Amend, and obviously, uh, uh, hopefully, if you got any feedback for us, we'll listen. Uh, we're we're going to do our best to keep everyone educated out there. Uh, the company's absolutely committed to doing the things it said in its perspective, so we're super grateful you guys are supportive.